Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. And I'm John Birdsall. How are you doing, Kirk? <clears throat> doing great. Uh, so, hey, uh, lots going on in the world. And not just the bus. Really? I mean, there's. I had. I had. I hadn't noticed. I hadn't noticed at all. Wow, that's weird. Like, well, what? you know, give me the, an example. I like. I like to keep track of situations where, you know, every once in a while, I've done this over the years. Examples of lawyers behaving badly, and I get really excited when I get examples of judges behaving badly, and I've got a really good one here. Um, just <laughs> very recently, the Arkansas Supreme Court suspended judge Barry Sims. Now that sounds like a fake name, like, you know, I don't know, like a car salesman or something like that. Hi, I'm Barry Sims. <laughs> this is a sweet deal I can give you here. No, anyway, he was a, <laughs> he is a circuit judge in Pulaski County, Arkansas. And uh, the Supreme court has imposed discipline on him by suspending him without pay for 30 days and an additional 60 days, which can be lifted if he takes Certain remedial measures, and this is interesting just because the conduct of the judge was all directed at defense lawyers. So, you know, that kind of hits hits home with you and I, right? Right. But um, there were certain facts that were put forth, and the judge actually didn't dispute any of these. And, and you know, this is similar to our process that we have in Wisconsin with the Office of Lawyer Regulation. They have a uh, Judicial Discipline and Disability Commission. I guess that's like a sub subsection of their disciplinary um, agency, I suppose. So, uh, first of all, uh, <laughs> Judge Sims has to take classes on hmm, mindfulness, patience, civility <clears throat> with a specific judicial training organization. I, I don't know what that would be. But he also has to hire a life coach to help consult with him about how he treats professionals appearing in court. So uh, this I is almost will, like a, I will, I will gladly take that job on as okay. his life coach. <laughs> right, right. So it's almost like a sandwich board thing in the sense that, uh, you know, everybody knows that he's <laughs> so lame that he has to have some, somebody to help. So him, you know. <clears throat> did the, did the article give any examples of like yes. some of the nastier things he did? Oh, I do have examples here. In, and all these things happened in 2019, by the way. Um, in one case in April of 2019, uh, the court, the commission found that he had been impatient, discourteous, and rude to a defense lawyer during a hearing on a no-knock warrant. And this is great. At one point, he simply left the bench while the defense lawyer was questioning a witness. He got up and left the bench and went into chambers during the middle of questioning. I've heard enough then, of these damn silly <laughs> defense lawyer questions. So when the uh, defense lawyer, at another point in the hearing, when the defense lawyer was responding to an objection, the judge would not let her make a record of any kind. He, he uh, disallowed her, you know, and that's a, that's a hard thing, you know, when you've got a judge that is not giving you a serious shake on any of these hearings. And, you know, it's part of our obligation, albeit, you know, uncomfortable when you know the judge's really being critical of you and, and appearing to state an opinion about the merits of your issue, you still have to make a record, you know, like judge, let me at least explain why. And most and judges that. naturally understand that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's your job to disagree. It's also your job to make sure that the record, in other words, the court reporter who's taking down every word um, understands 
exactly what the issue will be if an, a higher level authority, meaning a court of appeals, um, needs to know exactly what the issue is. And you know how many times you see this in appellate um, decisions where, you know, the appellate lawyer will raise an issue and the court would then say, well, you know, it wasn't preserved properly or it wasn't raised correctly. So, I mean, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah. If you, do, if you don't make a record of certain things, you waive any ability to um, uh, appeal that. This, this actually right, reminds right. me of, of a case I had many years ago, but, um, but I learned a valuable lesson. And um, uh, just to give you, just to give our listeners some context um, in which to place this. So I had a, uh, a Fourth Amendment search issue where the police came in looking for my client um, and the father, he's, my client was married and the father-in-law, they lived with him, but they lived in a building in the back. And he gave them, he gave the police permission at 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning to go in and search. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was an apparent authority thing. So that's inside baseball. But the point is, is that we had three days of hearings about his right to exclude people from that property and all of this. And I wrote a really long brief and um, it was really detailed testimony. And the judge denied my motion. And in so denying it, he made credibility findings about certain witnesses and certain findings of fact and conclusions of law. And what I did was <clears throat> I made a record and I asked the judge specifically about each point. Why did you do this? Why did you find him credible? Why did you, you know, what was it? And I made him explain on the record. So it was all part of the transcript of the hearing. Cause you know, otherwise they just issue a, like a one paragraph motion, your motions denied, get lost, you know? <laughs> um, and then I took that to the court of appeals and got him reversed using his own words to show his faulty reasoning and the same right. thing in the Supreme court. And so that is critical. So now I do that all the time where I ask the judge politely and respectfully and professionally to explain the details of the ruling so that it is part of the record because the right. if you appeal, the only thing they look at is what, whatever is in the record. That's the only thing they look at. If there's, if there's right. something like, I think a lot of people, they think, well, if I'm going to appeal and all this stuff went wrong, well, if stuff went wrong, you have to make it part of the record or you can forget about it. Right. And uh, another good thing about the need to do that is that, you know, at least in Wisconsin, I know we have this procedure. There is, uh, when you're pursuing an appeal, um, and oftentimes it's not the same lawyer, but if it is the same lawyer, then, you know, if some you have this opportunity to remit, you know, to go back to this trial court for further fact-finding or further clarification. If you got a dude sitting in jail or something like that, while all this is where it's going back and forth, that can be a real problem. And the better record you make, the less need there is uh, to go back before it actually hits the Court of Appeals. Uh, but get, getting back to this Sims guy, um, the yeah. Honorable Sims guy, he uh, <laughs> during this hearing where he was not letting the defense lawyer do her job at all, um, there were other reports from people in the courtroom that <laughs> it was reported that his facial expressions, demeanor, and actions alarmed other lawyers and members of the gallery and, and uh, several people reported his conduct. Then in May of the same year, during <laughs> voir dire, 
and you, you and I know what that is, but it's selecting a jury, right? In a criminal mm-hmm. case, uh, the judge called the lawyers to the bench and made statements about the way the defender was conducting voir dire, and then he asked the lawyer whether her client had any defense whatsoever and whether uh, she would accept a guilty plea right then and there. And the case ended up with an acquittal. And the things that he uh, had said to try and basically coerce um, a settlement of the case were deemed improper. And that, that's absolutely a clear example of something a judge should not do. You know, in our experience, you and I, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've occasionally you'll be in front of a judge that really just doesn't want to, uh, does not appreciate the fact that you're doing your job and actually, you know, if I say this all the time, if not for defense lawyers, there would be no convictions ever of anybody because that's how our system works. So judges that view the defense as sort of a, an inconvenience in the the way of managing <laughs> their calendar and time, that's the attitude you get is that, hey, I got to go fishing, you know, so, so let's get out of here. <laughs> so this, this uh, the, you actually raise a serious issue, though, about the role of a judge in plea negotiations. So traditionally judges are you know, to uh, uh, quote the chief justice, you know, calling balls and strikes about this is this evidence is coming in. This evidence isn't. And they don't get involved, though, between the parties and the parties are the plaintiff is the government, the state or the municipality or whatever it is. And then the defendant and those two parties negotiate potential plea agreements or, or they don't. But the judge is not supposed to be involved. I kind of think that there should be some, and I don't know what your opinion is on this, but I I kind of think there should be some involvement with the judge to just like um, kind of pre-try the case in a way, you know, kind of, I I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong about this and maybe this would be a bad thing, but, um, but I think there, I think it's okay if there's, if there's some at least, um, batting around about, you know, how this case should be resolved. What do you think? Yeah, well, let's pick up on that point when we come back from our commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back with more legal defense. We were going to come up with a new name, weren't we? Yeah, I know. We're just going to stick with it, you know. I mean, that requires <laughs> a lot of thought. <laughs> it, it, you know, you know, you know what, we, could hire those, has, we could hire one of those companies that comes up with slogans of things, you know, like um, you've heard about this where uh, it's usually a municipality hires, you know, a company, usually an advertising company or something like that, that uh, tries to come up with the, you know, like the slogan for your city. And um, so, Wisconsin did, you know, like Lac, for example, uh, they paid, I don't know how much it was. I think, I think I heard it was like $50,000 to some firm to come up with, you know, what's going to be our thing. What are we going to say to get people to come here and enjoy our tourism and everything else? So what they came up with is Fond du Lac, come on in $50,000. <laughs> wow. That'd be the easiest 50 grand earned man wow. yeah i know okay i, uh, I wonder about yeah. that but um well actually in what we did in wisconsin i there's a um i this was i don't know if i was a kid or the 80s or what but we would have like um uh just statewide contests to see who could come up with a new license plate design or a new like 
logo, you know, come visit Wisconsin. Wow. We have beer and cheese. I, you know, <laughs> that's, that's really all you have to say, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I guess, but somebody came up with America's Dairyland. I don't know. Um, well, America's Dairyland, that was like probably in the 50s or something when we really were America's Dairyland. <laughs> yeah, we were. Um, yeah. You know, I think we're just sticking with it because it's romantic, but um, California's <laughs> America's Dairyland now. <laughs> yeah, true, true, true. Oh, boy. Good point. Um, so uh, we were talking about how uh, just before the break, you were getting into this whole issue of. Yeah, whether or not judges should have a role in um, uh, facilitating plea bargains, because it really bothers me, actually, that we even have to have this discussion, because the trial penalty is live and well in America and in Wisconsin. And what the trial penalty is, is the um, uh, the structure of laws and and power that forces defendants to choose not to have a trial, but to plead guilty in 97%, 97% of all cases in the criminal justice system end up in a plea. And I think that's atrocious because yeah. um, back in the seventies, maybe the sixties, it was not unusual to have a trial rate of 30 or 40% of cases going to trial. Sure. And and that's what the whole system, you know, that's what movies are. It's <laughs> what movies you show. That's that's what people visualize when they think about the criminal justice system is having a trial and testing witnesses and their credibility and their memory and their their judgment and you know and experts and 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 weighing the evidence and really and really trying to come to a thoughtful decision. Um, <clears throat> that's what trials are supposed to be, and they've just gone to the wayside. Except for when you and I are involved, but you know, I mean, uh, right. <laughs> we just we just um, take it in trip. It is surprising yeah. to me uh, as I as I continue on this path in my career, um, how often uh, we encounter cases where prosecution simply has it wrong, and it's like they have blinders on and they cannot see anything other than what appears to be an opportunity for a conviction. And I complain about this all the time, but you know. The thing is, and that's really what our job is, to is to explore the other side of the story and to put the prosecution to their burden of proof. But, you know, there are very important reasons why and it's a confluence of things that have resulted in this trial penalty concept. One of them is I would call it a cultural shift. I mean, it's just when the norm is and uh, it, the case will settle, and then that's the expectation of the judge and the prosecutor and the cops and the crime labs and everybody else, right? You know, when crime, we catch crime labs pencil-whipping forms and not really doing their jobs correctly because it's too much work, and they, they just figure, ah, well, that's going to plead out anyway, and if it doesn't, well, so be it. You know, this is complacency attitude that sort of has taken hold. Now, part of that, part of what created that, of course, is the sentencing guidelines in federal court and other guidelines that have applied in um, various state court systems. And uh, we don't really have that problem, but we do have to deal, grapple with mandatory minimums and things of that nature. But the, the fear factor of the difference between going to trial and not is actually numerically uh, sketched out in the sentencing guidelines for Federal cases. I mean, there's a, there's an actual numerical difference uh, if you go to trial or not. 
right? Now, there is case yeah, law. No, there, absolutely. There is case law that says you can still have acceptance of responsibility, even if you do put the burden on the government. But the point is, that's a tricky, tricky line to walk. Um, that same sort of mechanical thing doesn't exist in our state court system, at least not in Wisconsin. But, you know, you raise a good point. And should judges have a, a hands-off approach where they're, they are literally just calling balls and strikes? Well, I don't mean literally. I mean that they're they're keeping their hands off of the case and just basically supervising. Or if – and I know what you mean. There are times when a judge can see that the prosecution is just – they don't know they're, Insane. They're, wrong. they're just wrong and they're they don't have any perspective or they're relying on something that isn't you know well, but the, i'll the, give you I'll power give does the judge really have it really can't go that's where i'd like to see more judicial, judicial involvement but you don't want to have a reverse you know a, a whiplash reaction where judges will say you should not be taking this case to try you know they say that i mean that that gets said to me all the time what what is your defense and why are you trying this case well uh because he's not guilty how about that the presumption of innocence yeah. is that okay yeah. with you judge or what you want me to explain everything to you right now on the record so that the prosecution can take <laughs> notes and try and fix their case right right is that what yeah. you want? also so also also none of your business judge but um, right, right. no but i'll give you a perfect example of a case where um uh, where it was actually a life-saving thing for my client. And this was a case that you worked on. This is one of the first cases you and I worked on. And it was a young man who was um, 18. Yeah, he was 18 both when it started and when um, the case was charged. But he met this girl online. And the girl represented herself as being 16. And, of course, they do what teenagers do. They trade naughty texts and they arrange to meet up. They get stopped by a cop. They're late at night in a park, and um, she tells the cop she's 16. Well, it turns out she's 13. And um, um, and so they charged this guy with sexual assault of a child, and um, uh, it was absolutely ridiculous that they would charge you know, a serious felony like that. And um, I brought you in. Because I was so angry at the um, <laughs> at the prosecutor that I couldn't even see straight that I could that I was I felt like I was losing my judgment and and I felt like you come in with you know fresh eyes on it and um, and that helped a lot to to calm the waters. But what really helped was the judge. So if you recall the mm-hmm. <laughs> the morning of trial. Like this case should not have been anywhere near a trial, but the morning, but I wasn't going to accept a felony. And the morning of trial, the jurors are all there. The judge comes out and the judge very quizzically looks out and he says, hmm, well, this is really unusual. We're here to pick a jury today, but these cases are usually handled somewhat differently. And I said, I immediately jumped up and I was like, yes, judge, they are. And he goes, why don't you guys find a room and just talk about it? <laughs> and, and that's he was, when you passed the baton on, on to me and I ran with it, right? That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, we immediately, but the, it was like a gentle, like, um, yeah, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this state. Um, why don't you go figure it out? Um, yeah, and giving, that's what giving, we, giving, giving a preview of what, uh, like where the escape valve might be, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and, 
But, you know, that's that sort of judicial involvement, I think, is more than just appropriate. I think it's needed in some ways because because, you know, as much as we complain about judges, there's a lot of judges that are worth complaining about. But there's a lot of awesome judges. Yeah, there's a lot of well, you really, really, know, really excellent ones. You and I both know one judge and I won't use names here, of course, but it's traditional for this judge to invite the parties back into chambers and then he'll say, OK, uh, how much is your guy willing to take? Okay, uh, uh, prosecutor, would you come down to that? Okay, good. Let's 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 do that. <laughs> I know exactly who you're talking about, and um, and 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 I think that's just fine. I really do. <laughs> you know, I mean, because he's uh, he was trying to, trying to facilitate, um, trying to facilitate make, a discussion. Yeah. yeah, and and a lot of times the prosecutors don't want to have that discussion, right? Yeah, with, right. you know, well, no matter. Uh, yeah, we got to take a break. So we'll be right back after these messages. We're back from our commercial messages. Um, John, I just want to kind of conclude the, the story here about uh, Judge Barry Sims. Uh, there's just a bit more to go through here, in, um, but a, a really oh, good example here. My goodness. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> this actually happened to me. Once, but the judge uh, berated a defense lawyer in open court asking, are you going to file another judicial complaint against me? You know, on the record. And uh, people in the courtroom said that his demeanor was intimidating, uh, angry and improper. And and it turned out that, first of all, not only was the judge wrong because this particular defense lawyer had never filed a complaint against the judge, but even if... uh, the lawyer had that is so improper. I mean, but I want to talk about this because this actually did happen to me. Um, you know that when I first moved to Wisconsin, I worked for a law firm back then. It was known as Barry Cohen and Associates. It was later mm-hmm. named um, mm-hmm. Malowski, Obear, and Cohen. And uh, well, I was doing a trial in Fond du Lac County and a judge who has long since retired. Um, I'm, you know, just like we were talking about before, I'm making a record of something. And, uh, you know, I had been in the state of Wisconsin, probably a grand total of, you know, 30 days or 45 days at this point. One of the first cases I was handling, you know, at trial and the judge, you know, I'm, I'm doing my job. I'm doing it somewhat, you know, vigorously like I usually do. And the judge stops for a second and he goes, what, he goes, what are you going to do if I deny this request? Are you going to file another complaint against me? And I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) he he thought I was somebody else for one thing or whatever. And it was apparent to everybody there that this, that he thought I was someone that, so two things about that. Number one, he's just flat out wrong. But number two, if he had been right, what kind of a thing is that to say? I mean, that is another feature by the way, you and I know this well, but the way that the rules of ethics work um, in most states and certainly in our state is that not only are there things that can warrant uh, the filing of a complaint, but in many instances, if an attorney, a licensed lawyer in this state is aware of conduct that is in violation of the Supreme Court rules, then there's actually an obligation to report it. It's not you know, discretionary if it's a clear violation. Um, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, and it's kind of a, a sticky thing to get into because, 
there's that type of lawyer that always just wants to get along with everybody, right? Well, you know, they they can't file a complaint against the DA because they're going to go golfing on Saturday, you know, with the same person, which is, I, I've always made that point that once in a while, you know, we'll get a client that comes in and says, yeah, I talked to this other lawyer. He says he's friends with the DA and he can have, you know, he can convince him to get rid of this. And I usually say, well, that's probably not true, but if it is, you know, be my guest, that's not what I'm going to do. And, uh, but that is something that seriously gets in the way of, proper representation and the objectivity that we need to maintain. And I shouldn't use the word objectivity because we actually are uh, part of our formal oath as well as our informal oath as to what we promise to do is to advocate for that person and nobody else, you know? And that's why right. I have, right. every time someone asks me, how can you represent those people? And, you know, I say, well, actually I'm representing you and everyone else and myself as part of defending our system. And I have no problem doing that. I don't care what my client did or didn't do. I am, am sworn to defend him or her, uh, no matter what. And in, in many ways, it's, uh, I'm more comfortable with the, the morality of that than if I were a prosecutor simply seeking to impress the public or my boss so that I can get promoted or get a pay raise or elected and other things that happen in that process. But, you know, I always wonder, well, it's not too much of a mystery, really, but how do judges like Judge Barry Sims end up uh, getting their jobs? And how do they end up keeping their jobs? And by the way, he didn't, he's not, didn't lose his job. He's just, he's got to have a life coach and he's got to spend 30 days with no pay, um, which hopefully sends a message, but you got to reel it back, peel it back, you know, how does this someone like that end up being a judge? And it happens a lot. And you know what it is, right? It's the especially if there's an election, if there's that that kind of state where they run TV ads and they uh, assure everybody that the bad guys will be removed mm-hmm. from society, mm-hmm. and you you can sl- you can go back to that era where you don't have to lock your doors and you can leave the keys in your car and. Blah, blah, blah. You know, <laughs> well, I remember one judge running ads that said um, uh, that um, I have a job for criminals making license plates. And then they have this big <laughs> license plate press, you know, boom, boom. You know, and that's part of the ad. And I'm just like, come on, man. And that judge. Is yeah, well, it's, feels- <laughs> you know, it's funny. It, it is funny because we always say about politicians. <clears throat> I mean, we just saw a. Probably the most extreme example of uh, promises being made and, well, many of us at least believe that they weren't kept. You know, like, I'll never play golf when I'm president, but whoops, uh, <laughs> things like that. But, you know, it, when right. it comes to – let's, let's use a more um, – let's use an, another example on the other side of the uh, spectrum. But President Obama made many promises that he was unable to keep. For various reasons, um, but the point is, we don't really get surprised when a politician says, oh, "I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that," and blah 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 blah. They have the opportunity, almost always, to be able to say, yet, "Not my fault." Yet we want Somebody to believe else. them every time. We <laughs> want to. We just want to. So, we 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 were drawn towards certain 
personalities, you know, um, and we want to believe what they're saying and that they can do, you know, basically they're superhuman and they can do anything, you know, and, and we, and, that- you know, in your heart, that's not true. Right. We all know that's not true. And, and there are impediments along the way that sometimes it's because who controls Congress or who controls the Senate, that kind of thing. But, you know, so we give some of the higher up politicians a pass, you know, when it comes to, well, he didn't do everything he promised, but he had good intentions. Why doesn't that, you know, paradigm or example really apply to judges? Because, you know, that I'm sure that's what's on their mind when they when a judge behaves this way like Barry Sims, he thinks he's impressing the public. He thinks that people that are watching him are going to be happy that he is uh, trying to prevent a defense from working, you know? <laughs> um, and well, that's another aspect you know, this, of when people say, how can you represent those people? They, yeah, am I trying to get somebody who may have done something wrong off the hook? Yeah, I am. Of course I am. But it's not just trickery or smoke and mirrors or anything like that. It's, it's the law, man. It's the law. And mm-hmm. that's where every time mm-hmm. I win a case, I'm, I'm very proud of that because it means the prosecution didn't do their job. And it actually does keep our society uh, free in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. So if I could just pivot here a little bit and, and uh, cause I got a pet peeve that I want to, mm. I want to pick at here. Um, and that is um, prisons and the massive um, explosion of prisons and the hope we were talking about people making promises, the hope that a certain change in administration might reduce the prison population even more than say just general downward crime trends anyways, which as you and I both know, a lot of the long-term downward trend of crime during most of the 2000s um, is just due to demographics, you know, aging population, baby boomers aging out. And so, cause generally crime is a young man's game, but the prison thing, just so everybody knows the context, Wisconsin had about 2000 prisoners, two to 3000 in the early eighties. Um, and the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, we quadrupled, more than quadrupled, our prison population. Um, you know, even if even if they're in the early 80s, maybe it spiked to four or something like that. But we now have about 23,000 prisoners. And it's a very, very expensive adventure. In fact, we spend more on the DOC, the Department of Corrections, than we do on the UW system. So mm-hmm. when Tony Evers came in, um, you know, the promise, and it wasn't explicit, but the goal at least was to cut the prison population in half. And um, and that should be very doable because we went up so fast, it exploded so fast um, that that should be very doable by addressing, you know, drug crimes and things like that. But, um, but that is not happening uh, because of this prison industrial complex that was developed during the Thompson administration's you know, year, many years in office. Um, and, and, and it's all linked to, and this is something I've talked with Jared Adams about a lot, who spent time in Wisconsin prisons. Um, and because once you build it, you know, it's like the old saying, if you build it, they will come. Well, if you build it, we got to fill it. And we're going to fill it with people from Milwaukee, 
on the north side yeah. and we're going to fill it by revoking people and we're going to and and here's the here's here's why it's interlinked is because um, when you build a prison out in a rural community, well, that's a rural community that's probably hit hard by, you know, uh, farming downturns. You know, the 80s, 90s has been, you know, horrific for family farms in Wisconsin. And so these are stable, good paying government jobs, being a guard in a prison or working in some other capacity as a vendor. Um, and then the farmers sell them hundreds of acres of land to build on the construction companies and all the construction jobs um, to build the facility in the first place and to maintain the facility. Um, it's all this interconnected corporate links to um, uh, to keep the system in place. And so those people are all lobbying everybody in Madison to not cut the prison population. <laughs> you know, what are we going to do with this big building? Turn it into, into a, a daycare center? I don't oh, think yeah. so. Yeah, yeah. You know? Well, uh, <clears throat> hold that thought, my friend, because we do have to let our commercial sponsors have a little say in this. Absolutely. We are back with more legal defense and um, continuing our discussion about, uh, or my rant, maybe. <laughs> I do that occasionally. I, you know, so some people love my rants. Some people are just like, okay, that's enough, John. We get it. We get it. We, <laughs> we love what you do. We get it. So anyway, right, we were right. talking about prisons and, and this prison industrial complex. And it really is um, this web of financial interests that keep the prison system from being reduced. Um you know, so you think about uh, all around all the adult institutions we have around the state. I mean, it's a fantastical number. There's like 35 of them of various kinds. There's some minimums and there's some maximums and there's some mediums and that sort of thing. And then um, uh, but the point is, is that each one of those has vendors. They have employees. They have state, they're all state employees, and then they have vendors like people that bring in the food, people that um, uh, provide the phone service, which is a whole nother thing, um, uh, which is a racket like nobody's right, business. Right. And, you know, um, it, uh, but it's very appropriate that you use the word prison industrial complex, and here's why. And, and this is a perfect direct analogy. We can learn from what the military had to do uh, going through the same process. So here we have a goal to reduce prison populations. There was a time, namely, I remember. when the Cold War was, you know, quote unquote, over, when there was um, a big push to close military installations because they were not, we it, needed to kind of perfect down our... Yeah, ramp down our um, spending as well as our you know investments. So we had tremendous uh, you know outcry from those communities that were that had been built around a military installation. And you remember that going on. People were like, "Don't close this base. It's my job. It's my livelihood. It's etc." And you know the reason that it was able to happen and the reason that it did happen is that they cut the money off. They said, "Okay, well." You know, Department of Defense, you're going to have to figure out on your own what what is important to you and what you're going to have to cut because we're giving you half the money we did last year. It's up to you to figure it out. Okay, 
So they closed installations and they had, they just had to out of necessity because we had built this up in an era when there was a perceived need for it. That need, you know, disappeared as a result of changing attitudes, changing whether we do have the same adversaries or not, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it was painful, painful for some, but it, it had to happen. I mean, if the money dries up and it gets yanked, uh, you know, they have to make do, you know, I remember I was in the Air Force through a lot of that time when there was this drawdown, so to speak. And every year they would say, all right, we want you to do twice as much with half as much money. Then the following year, okay, good job. Now you, we need you to do again, do twice as much with half as much money. Finding ways. Creativity was part of it. Okay, how do we – you so, got to look at your so, economics of the whole thing. Maybe we don't need – you know, 10 of something when we can get by with three of them. So good example here we, those tools, that in, innovation, that ingenuity that was, that was being tried to pump it, pump it back into the military. So it wasn't bloated with so much, you know, pork, so to speak, what can happen and should happen is that if there can be funding reductions for the operation of the prison, but diverting that money towards community programs and towards, you know, our, education resources, our diversion resources, you know, counseling, etc. That's how you get the money out of the prisons is you invest in, well, in the same well, thing in other this ways. Is, this is, there's a there's a there's a term that every law student has heard and it's called creative destruction. And um, it, it stems originally from this case in the 1700s called the Charles River Bridge case. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, it involved, um, uh, this bridge and at the time bridges over rivers was a big business. You know, you built a bridge, then you charged a toll. And if people didn't want to pay the toll, you'd be like, eh, okay, well, I guess you're not going to move your yeah. goods over to market. And, um, it, you know, it involved whether or not they, you know, that, that, that was going to be permissible and details don't matter. But the point that the court made was that. You know, um, that th that sort of innovation is going to be necessary going forward. And that was called creative destruction. So if you destroy something, you're, you're creating the, the, the fertile grounds from which something else will spring. And it's really an yeah. ancient philosophical concept, the bird of Phoenix and that sort of thing rising mm -hmm. from the ashes. And it's and it's, you know, I. It, it seems to bear out many over and over and over again. Um, and it's a difficult process because, you know, um, we watch this with technology where, for example, in the automotive industry where, you know, we used to have all these great paying jobs on the line, putting together cars. And then suddenly automation comes in, you know, oh, yeah. and by the eighties or nineties, you know, most of those jobs, you know, were just displaced. And so, and that's painful for those workers. Are they evil robots? Yeah, we just have to find new ways to innovate and and get into a new economy. And we're doing the same thing now with green energy, you know, and um, uh, and trying to create all these green jobs as opposed to, you know, and I think a lot of companies are really stepping up to the plate. Um, Ford's going to have like all electric vehicles in like twenty thirty five or something. So the point is, is that. You know, um, I, I think with the problem with the criminal justice system and breaking it down like that is going to be overcoming this um, 
desire by politicians to always have this tough on crime mantra and pound the fist on the table about how tough they are when they have literally no idea about how the criminal justice system works. And you know what? Right. They, they don't care either. Because they capitalize they on help. fear. That's what it is. It's all based on fear. Yes. So you how do you change that? By staring them. I, right. How we change <laughs> that, I don't know. But but there is, there is a movement. This is interesting um, along these lines. Uh, in Nebraska, they did the same thing. It's a very similar state to Wisconsin in the sense that it's very, very rural. <clears throat> and they, they're... Uh, over the past 15 years, their prison population spiked 25%. So it's similar, like super steep um, incline uh, or increase. Um, but now a lot of them, they're looking to build a new prison and they cannot find a town to take them because the towns have figured out that they were sold a bill of goods that, you know, that the DOC would be like, oh, this is going to be great. All these great paying jobs and stuff. And initially that's true. <clears throat> But it's kind of a dead economic center for them because it's not like the prisoners are out, you know, buying lunch at the local cafe and spending money in the town. And, you know, it's um, and so these towns are turning them down. They don't want the prisons anymore. I see quite a bit of and foresight so, when you think about because you have to understand that, OK, good, good for the short haul. But then the entire community becomes dependent on that one thing. So, hey, dude, uh, we're yeah. coming up on the end of the show. but um, That's a shame. Just say, I, I enjoy our kibitzing every week, and it's always fun. Um, but next week, Love. our listeners can tune in like they do every week, uh, every Saturday morning from 8 o'clock to 9 o'clock, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Events with Kirk and John. Have a great week. Fun, fun kibitzing new with you.